The New Testament reading this morning is, starts with uh, the book of Luke, chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And from Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Stephanie. We um, are going to be starting a new series in a couple of weeks uh, that'll take us through Easter. But here at the beginning of the year, we're taking a little time um, to just kind of prepare ourselves in some ways for a new year. And last week, on the Feast of Epiphany, when God's light goes out uh, to the Gentiles, it goes out into the world. We looked at a passage from Paul in 2 Corinthians in chapter 4 where Paul says that that light has shone into our hearts. That light has come and actually shone into our hearts and because of that we have this miraculous gift, this treasure that he has given us of his grace and it's been put in these frail, cracked fragile bodies, these jars of clay, so that the power of God might actually be more seen and known even through our weaknesses and even through our suffering and even through the things that we might despise in our own lives that his power goes out. And he says because of that, we are people who do not lose heart. That even though the outer self is wasting away, that that our inner self is being renewed day by day, and that these afflictions that we have in our life, they are light and they are momentary compared to the glory that is coming, the glory that is going to be revealed. And so Paul tells us, because of that, what we see in our lives may not make sense to us. What we see in our lives might be very discouraging to us. When I look in the mirror, I may not like what I see. And he says, stop looking at the things that are seen because they are transient And they are changing. Instead, look and gaze and fix your eyes upon the things that are unseen. 
And so this morning, we're going to continue doing that. We're going to gaze at things that may not, we may not readily see, but they're the things that we need to know, and they're the things that we need to fix our eyes upon in these words of Paul from Romans chapter 6. So before I talk about them, let me um, ask God to help us. Father, we do, we need your help at every moment, at every minute. Father, I need your help um, with such a passage to make it clear. So by your spirit, would you, would you do that? And would you um, help get me out of the way so that you might be seen more clearly so the work of your son um, might be made known this morning um, in a way that is transformative to us, that truly changes us, that we can build our lives upon. And Father, we ask this um, so that your name might be made more great in this world, so that grace may extend to more and more, so that there might be more thanksgiving and more praise given to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in 2002, I was a seminary student in Jackson, Mississippi, and I received a a call. I was working on a college campus, and I received a call from that campus. The pastor was leaving and they wanted me to fill in. They called it a Band-Aid position, which is really like a really glory. I mean, it makes you really want to do it, right? I'm going to be a Band-Aid, meaning I was kind of filling a gap and before they found another ordained pastor. But one of the things I knew, and I, I jumped at this opportunity. I was really eager to do it, and I was excited to do it, but I was also terrified to do it. Because I had, one of the things I knew it would involve would be preaching. And I was terrified of preaching. I was terrified of speaking in public. I was terrified of being up in front of people. And I'd never done it before. And so I said yes, and then I was like, I better start preaching. And so the great thing about Mississippi is there's a lot of opportunities because there's a lot of rural country churches that don't have pastors. And so I signed up to go preach at one of these churches one morning. And I knew that I wanted to pick a passage that I'd never prepared a sermon before, so I wanted to pick a passage that I really wanted to lean into and to to think about and to study. And when you're really new at this, I mean, you might spend 25 hours uh, preparing that. You really really do, and I I know that I did. Um, And so I picked this passage. I picked Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And this week, it occurred to me, as I chose this passage for this week, it occurred to me that that was the first sermon that I ever preached. And so I thought, let me um, scour the dark corners of my hard drive and see if I can find that sermon. Because I'm really curious to what it was like. And I did. I found all ten glorious pages of that sermon. I fit everything I'd ever learned in my life into that sermon. And I don't know how this one's going to go this morning, but you all owe me a thank you for not preaching that sermon this morning. Well, I delivered it at this little country church, as I said, um, in Oldenburg, Mississippi, which is not really a place. It's really just a crossroads in, I mean, the middle of nowhere, about 30 minutes west of Natchez, Mississippi. And my wife and I pull up to this building, and I was thankful um, as I preached that first sermon that the total attendance that morning, including me and my wife, was eight. And you knew where the people were going to sit when they came in because they had little pads in the pew and they went straight to their pad and they sat down, all six of them. And as I drove up to that building for the first time, I looked at it and I thought, this thing is about to fall over. 
It's at least 100 years old. It doesn't look a day over 250 years old, right? It's just, it's one of those country churches that's sort of leaning a little bit. Just a simple white church. But it was sitting, and I still remember this, it was sitting on, and this is a lot of times country churches did this, they just found big stones and made them the foundation. And so this kind of crooked, frail, old white church was sitting on these massive stones so that you could literally walk up to the foundation and look down and see straight under the entire church. It looked a little weary, but the foundation was not in question at all. And so when I went to seminary, I didn't know um, if God would call me into ministry. I didn't know if I'd end up doing something else in my life and that would be a stop on the way. But I knew that morning in that little country church, as I got to talk about this passage, having wrestled with it and sat with it and meditated on it, and then being able to proclaim the truth of it, I knew that I walked out of that building that I could never not do that for the rest of my life. And I haven't preached this passage since then, 17 years ago, but I can honestly say this, it has been a foundation of my life. It has been seared into my mind and seared into my heart, and it is like, it feels like in my life, it feels like big stones that are holding up this flimsy, kind of crooked, frail body. And I want to ask you this morning, this this question as we think about this passage, what is your foundation? What is your foundation? What is the thing that you build your life upon? What can hold your life up for the long run? What is stable enough to actually support you in the midst of a winding and twisting and difficult life um, full of surprises and full of things that you, as you encounter them, you realize you, you can't handle them. What do you actually build your life upon? And here's the thing. We as a culture and as an American church culture, what we want is we want really quick fixes. And we want to come into church and we want a list of things to do. And we want to say, we just want to say, just tell me what to do. Just give me a list preferably no more than like five things, and like things that I'm able to accomplish, give that to me, because really what I want is I want my life to go okay, and I want to be a better person, and I just want a way, a pathway for you to get me there and in order to do that. I want a game plan so that I can manage everything in my life, and it'll ensure that I end up in the place where I want to be. And I can guarantee you that this passage is not that. It is not a quick fix. It is not a short list of things to do. But if your eyes are open this morning and your ears are open to hear, what you'll see is that you can build your life on this. And it is solid. When the, um, the great Welsh preacher, I think maybe one of the great, greatest pastors and preachers in the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was asked one time, when are you going to preach a sermon, a sermon series through Romans? And he said, he said this, when I figure out what Romans 6 really means. And he studied for 10 years. And then he spent a really long time preaching through Romans. And when he got through this chapter, he spent half a year on it. It's important. You can build your life on it. 
We've got 30 minutes to talk about it. So what are we going to do? Let me tell you a little bit of the background that leads up to what Paul is talking about in Romans 6. And then I'm just going to tell you two points that are so simple. That if you are in Christ, you have died. And if you are in Christ, you are alive forevermore. They are so simple. And yet they're so complex. All right? So what is the background? So leading up to this passage, Paul has essentially been doing this. He's essentially been unfolding a doctrine, this doctrine called justification. All right? That's a big pants word, right? That's a, we're big pants people here this morning. We can handle a big word. This word is justification. This is what he's been unfolding. And in a nutshell, this is what he's saying, that there is nobody who is good. That because of the fall, because of man's rebellion against God, that all of us who are born in this world of the flesh, we are in the flesh, and that there is no one who is good, there is no not one. And he kind of addresses the Gentiles, and you know everyone already realizes the Gentiles were called sinners anyway, and they realize they're sinners, but then he addresses the Jews who were given the law. And he says, well, you're... You can't stand before God either because even though you possess the law, you have broken every bit of the law. And nobody keeps the law. And so nobody stands. What Paul gets to is this point where he brings them to a point where he says nobody stands before God on their own merit. Nobody. There's nobody who gets to the end of their life and they say, well, I tried to be a good person. Um, There's nobody who gets to the end of their life and, and can actually say, I loved God with all of my heart and all of my soul and with all of my strength and with all of my mind. And I loved my neighbor as myself at every moment and every millisecond of my life. Paul brings them down. This is the, the, the bad news of the good news, is that we have to grapple with this fact. It's the reason when we join the church, we take these vows that say, do you realize that you justly deserve his displeasure? There is no good news without fully... We, the good news won't, won't be good until we realize how dire the situation is. And so that's what Paul does. He makes it very dire. How can we possibly... Hey, the question he's asking is, How can people like us be in a relationship with God because God is holy and just and we are not? And in order to be in a relationship with God, we have to be righteous. And we're the unrighteous and we're the ungodly. So how can we be in a relationship with God when we actually deserve to be condemned by God? And essentially Paul's answer is this, and I'm going to make it really simple. He just says, through this first part, it is completely and utterly by grace. It is completely and utterly by grace. It is through a substitutionary work of Jesus, of Jesus, of God's Son, Jesus Christ, who comes. And he becomes man. And this is why he needed to become man, because there was no other man who had kept the law. And so Jesus, we're all, we're all represented by Adam, and Jesus comes, Paul tells us in Romans 5, as the final Adam, as the second Adam, as the one who would love God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and his neighbor as himself at every single moment. And that final Adam comes and lives in our place and then bears the condemnation for each and every one of our sins. And all of this is given to us 
Paul makes perfectly clear there's nobody who's like decided one day that they were going to believe this because they were so smart or they were um, more knowledgeable than their neighbor or that they were a better person, that all of this is given utterly as a free gift. He puts it this way in Romans 5.4. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted. As righteousness. I mean, these were bold words that Paul is saying to the one who doesn't work, who doesn't do anything, who can't say, um, but I've really been kind of a good person most of my life. He's saying, no, the one who has no works to show before God, but believes that God is one who justifies the ungodly, thereby saying, I am the ungodly. His faith is counted to him as righteousness, and righteousness is what you need to be in a relationship with God. These are big words that Paul is saying. And he takes it all the way to the point that right before the passage that we're looking at this morning, he says, therefore, since we have been justified, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this, whether you're religious, whether you're irreligious, whether it's first time in church, this is what you're looking for. You may be offended by me saying that. Um, that's okay. Because behind everything that we seek in this life, what we're looking for is what was lost. And what was lost in the garden was peace with God. In fact, enmity was put there. And Jesus came to become that curse for us so that we might have peace with God again. And so if you've been trying a lot of things in your life this morning and you show up here and you kind of go, none of them are giving me peace, there's a reason for that because none of them can give you peace. But Jesus can. He really can. And this is what Paul is saying. In fact, he goes so far as to say at the very end of chapter 5, right before we jump into this passage, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where, where sin actually got worse, where I looked at myself, which um, I do often, and realize, oh, Tim Udodge is way more messed up than Tim Udodge ever imagined. I'm way more messed up than, I'm, than I ever thought. What happens at that moment is that I realize that Jesus' grace is so much better than I ever imagined. It goes so much deeper. It goes so much farther. What I thought I needed was simply a tutor to train me in the things of godliness because I thought I could do them. And at every point, I realize I fail at all of them. And when I realize that, I see that Jesus has done it for me, that his grace has abounded all the more. And this was confusing to people. And it actually made people pretty angry. Because it was too easy. I remember talking to somebody one time about the gospel, and, and he looked at me, and he said, that sounds like a really good deal. I'm treated the opposite of what I, I'm given the opposite of what I deserve, and I'm treated as if I had done everything perfectly my whole life by the one who created me. And all I bring to the situation is my sin. That sounds really like a good deal. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It's a really, 
really good deal. And yet we resist it at every moment because what it sounds to us is it's too free. I want to do something. I want to contribute something to it. And this is what Paul is addressing because people were saying of Paul as he's going around and preaching this gospel is that they were saying, well, Paul is an antinomian. It's another big word. It just means anti-law, anti-nomos, that, that, that Paul is, is preaching this gospel of grace to such a degree that he's actually, he's forgetting about the law that we need to obey. And what Paul is saying is, you know, what the law has really done for you so far, it's beautiful. Paul loves the law. It's actually exposed you. And it's actually a tutor for you that brings you to Christ. In the next chapter, he says, if it wasn't for the law that said, do not covet, I wouldn't have known that I was a sinner because outwardly Paul had kept all the law. He looked like a pretty good dude. He did things pretty well. And he got to that last one that said, do not covet. Nobody could see anything on the outside about coveting, but Paul knew that he was a sinner. And so he's preaching this gospel of grace with such ferocity that the only logical question that many people could ask after he is preaching this gospel of grace is this. Does that mean I could just do whatever I want now? Does that mean, you know, Paul, what you're, what you're doing is that you're going to introduce anarchy into the church with this gospel of grace that you're going around preaching. And so in chapter 6, he anticipates this question because he's been asked this question before. And so he goes, goes ahead and asks it in this letter because he knows as he's writing to the Roman churches that they're thinking in their mind, this is not how we normally live. And if, if this gospel of grace is this free, then people are going to take advantage of it. And it's really interesting that the way that Paul responds to this is not to defend his view of the law. He actually gives them more gospel. He actually leans harder into it. And it, it's basically, he says, he, his answer is really strong. Do we keep sinning so that grace may abound? He, he says, may it never be. Now, this was like, that's a kind of a mild, we, never, we don't talk like that. Um, if you asked me something that I didn't, you know, think was true, and I, if I said, may it never be, you would laugh at me. This is more akin, I mean, he really, it's like, hell no, is what he's saying. Hell no. May it never be. And it's it, so, he, he turns and says, okay, you're not getting it to the degree that I want you to get it. And so I'm going to explain it in another way. And essentially what Paul does is he goes from talking about a legal declaration of your status before God to talking about being united with Christ, union with Christ. So he's essentially, what he essentially says is this, while justification, it gives you a new status, and that new status is not only not guilty, but righteous, because you bear the righteousness of Jesus, through the work of Christ, you are united with Christ so that you have a new nature. It's not just a new status, it's also a new nature. What does that look like? What does that mean? Thus, two points, in Christ you died, in Christ you are alive forevermore. First and foremost, being united with Christ means that you personally, who believe in Jesus and your body of sin, it died with Christ. It died with Christ. 
If you want to know if something's important to Paul, and maybe this applies to anywhere in the Bible, if they repeat it over and over and over again, it might be something that they want us to understand. And the words died, death, um, dead occur 14 times in 11 verses. 14 times in 11 verses. And what he's, he's so desperately trying to get us to see that is that it isn't as if some judge has stood at a distance and said, you know what, you're not guilty. You know what, even more than that, you're righteous. It's that your life is inextricably bound to Jesus' life and death so that whatever happened to him and whatever happens to him also happens to you. You are united to Jesus in his death, in his resurrection. Everything that is now belongs to him, Paul says, it now belongs to you. In other places, he says, you're a co-heir with Christ. That the inheritance of, of Jesus as the Son is now your inheritance. And to help you visualize this, he, gives, he goes into baptism. He gives baptism as an illustration. And as I said earlier, baptism is, a, is essentially a naming ceremony. And, and what's happening is that you no longer have the name of Adam that is written all over your life. But now you have been baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that baptism isn't about your decision to follow Jesus. It's about Jesus' decision to identify himself with you. Now I included the passage from Luke 3 just so you would have that imagery in your mind of when Jesus is baptized and when he is, the few verses before this, he goes to John the Baptist and John got his name John the Baptist, because he was baptizing everybody. They were coming to John, and John was in the Jordan, and he was baptizing people. And then Jesus, after he's baptized all these people, Jesus comes to John, and he says, hey, it's my turn. I want you to baptize me. And John's like, what? I can't baptize you. Why did John resist baptizing Jesus? Well, he knew something, obviously, of who Jesus was. And what he's thinking is he's standing in this water, is that this water is dirty. It's polluted with the filth of these people who've all come um, seeking forgiveness of their sins. They've been in this water, and Jesus enters that water, and John's like, I can't let a drop of this water touch you on the head. And And Jesus is saying, no, this is exactly what I came to do, to enter into the filthiness of this water. That Jesus is really baptized into your name, that he takes your name so that you might receive his name. And of course, Jesus' baptism is so linked to what he's come to do, it's so linked to his death, that when he is baptized, the heavens open up, a dove descends on him, and a voice comes out of heaven, the voice of the Father that says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus, who identifies himself with you, as he receives those words, those are the words that the Father proclaims over you in your union with Christ. Right now, this morning, you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. In you, I am so pleased because when I look at you, your life is hidden in Christ. 
And in Christ I am well pleased. I am well pleased with you. That is, this is why it's so foundational. This is why it's been seared into my head. Why? Because every day we wake up and say, what can I do to prove myself again? And the voice as the heavens open, boom to you. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, you have already died. The body of sin has been put to death. And God the Father says to you, now, this morning, you are my beloved. And you, I am well pleased. I heard the pastor um, once, a pastor, scholar, named Sinclair Ferguson, used to be down the road in Columbia, South Carolina, tell a story about a student that he had once who was a a Chinese student named Timothy. It's a great name. And uh, he said after he got to know this student for a while, he went to him one day, and he said to him, I wish I I could do a Scottish accent. I can't. Uh, He said to him, what's your real name? And he looked at him and said, Timothy. And he's thinking, well, maybe he's not understanding my question. Maybe there's something lost in translation, so I'll ask it in another way. So what is your given name? What is the the name that your parents gave to you? And he said he said this Chinese name that he wasn't able to um, accurately repeat back to him. But he said, and and then he he said to him, but my real name is Timothy. That's the name that was given to me at my baptism. That is who I am. And and, and you hear, like, the old self to him is gone. The old self is dead. He is alive now. Don't call me by my old name. My name is now Timothy because I've been baptized into Christ. It's in that same way Paul's saying to you, don't you see? You're asking this question that doesn't even actually, if you preach the gospel of grace in all its glory, people are going to ask the question. Does that mean I can keep doing? But he's going, don't you see what you're asking? That you must, from the point of your conversion, consider this fact. You have died to sin. With all of its guilt and with all of its penalty and with all of its slaving power, you are no longer a slave to it anymore. And you are now alive to God in Jesus Christ. It is that secure. Therefore, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you are united with Jesus Christ. What is his is yours. And thank God what what was yours became his so that he might perfectly deal with it. If you've been united with him in his death then you are also, Paul says, united with him in his life. And my friends, he is alive. He's alive right now. And and what this means is that whether you wake up tomorrow feeling like a failure or whether or not the cloud of depression lifts from your life or whether you develop a debilitating, crippling disease that attacks and deteriorates your body or whether even your body in this life is completely destroyed by some tragedy, nothing can change this immutable fact. You are alive forevermore, body and soul. You are united with Christ. 
And your union with him in this life is what will lead you to stand with him and before him and the life to come. And there is nothing that can change that. Listen to this. There is not one thing that you can add in this life that will more secure that fact. Jesus has done all of it. He has done it all. That is a foundation you can build your life on. And you might say, and rightly so, it's not how I feel, Tim. That's not how I feel this morning. I don't feel like that's true. And, and I would say back to you, isn't it wonderful that your union with Christ is not dependent on how you feel? Thank God. Isn't it wonderful that it's not dependent upon your emotions? All that is his is now yours And it was all miraculous. It was a gracious gift. A few days before Christmas, my my daughter said to me, and we've all said this before. I've said this before. You know, it just doesn't feel like Christmas. It just doesn't feel like Christmas this year. And I said something to the effect to her. It's like, isn't it wonderful that the coming of Christmas isn't dependent upon how intensely you feel like it's Christmas? The gifts are coming anyway. It doesn't matter how you feel about it right now. It's a fact that you can't change. December 25th is coming, and it's going to be good. She kind of looked at me blankly. But uh, (laughs) isn't it incredible that the most foundational truth about you as a Christian is based solely on what Christ has already accomplished and not upon how you feel right now? In fact, if you keep dwelling on that, it might change your feelings. You might feel differently. Knowing this, we can go back to this original question, and it may sound silly at this point, and I hope it does. So do we keep on sinning so that grace might abound? So, I mean, is that what we're supposed to do now? The penalty of sin is gone. The body of sin is gone has died and been buried. You are no longer enslaved to sin. The power of sin has been harnessed and dealt with. Why keep acting like a slave if you're not? If you've been set free? You're alive now is what Paul's saying. And you know what alive things do? Alive things grow. You don't go to a plant and say, why don't you go back into the ground? Why wouldn't you go back into the ground? Because a plant is alive and a plant grows and it grows upwards and it grows towards the sun. It grows because it's alive. And listen, if this morning you are united with Christ, you will grow too. You will. You may not feel like it right now you may feel so inevitably just stuck. The one who raised you with him from the grave, do you think he's going to leave you there? Do you think maybe even in the place where you feel stuck, he's doing the best work that he's ever done in your life so that you might even grow more and you might even flourish more? I'm telling you that if you are in Christ, it is inevitable that you will grow. That you're no longer struggling. This is what a lot of Christians do. I'm struggling to be free. No, you're already free. You're free to struggle. You're free to wrestle. You're free to battle sin. And Paul's not saying this. And some people interpret it this way. Paul is not saying that you're dead to sin in the sense 
that you're like impervious to sin, like sin can't touch you anymore and that you don't sin anymore. In fact, it's, it's quite the opposite of that. Now that you're alive in Christ, you feel the weight of sin more intensely. You feel it like you didn't feel it before. You don't want to live in it. It bothers you. It pesters you. Some of you are there right now, and you're going, I am so tired of this. You know what? That's a good sign that you're alive. It's a good sign that you're united with Jesus. If if it's driving you crazy, if sin, if you can live, he says, we can't go on living in sin. If you just dwell and live and rest in sin, and it never bothers you, it might mean that you're not alive. When we, were, when we were not united with Christ, it didn't matter, right? I mean, it, it, sin didn't really bother us. Why would us? But now you want to change because you've seen the beauty of Jesus and you've been united with the beauty of Jesus and you want to grow and you want to be like him and you will because the one who saved you is working in you by his spirit and he'll bring it to completion. And so, well, the question is, so do we don't do anything? No. Paul wants to drive the facts of what Jesus has done into your head so deeply that when he turns to tell you some imperatives and some commands that they are flowing out of the fact that you are already so secure in where you stand with God that you are now free to do the hard work of waging war against sin. So what do you do? In the rest of this chapter, you can go read it um, this afternoon. He starts to tell you what that looks like. You can meditate on it this week. You can meditate on it the rest of your life. But let me tell you some of the words that he gives to some other Christians in Philippians. And this is as he's talking about himself and what this means. He says, you know, I'm not perfect is essentially what he said. I'm going to paraphrase Paul. I'm not perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. I haven't attained it yet, but I press on. I'm free to press on now to take and grab hold of that for which Jesus grabbed hold and took hold of me. Why did Jesus grab and take hold of you? Because he wants to make you holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle or blemish. And Paul says, yeah, I'm I'm pressing towards that. Because he's already grabbed me. And a person who can press to take hold of a new life is one who is already assured that Jesus has taken hold of them. So good news, friends. The beginning of the year, you're already dead. You already died. You already died. In Christ, you died. You died to the penalty of sin. You died to its guilt. You died to its shame. You even died to its power. And just as he is alive this very morning, Standing at the right hand of God the Father, you have risen with him, and your life is so bound to his that no matter what may come of your life here, you will be with him forever. That is a foundation to build your life upon. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it is hard to consider what Paul is asking us to consider. It's hard for us to consider that we are dead to sin and alive to you because we feel it in our bones so much. And so, Father, I pray that as we come to this table and we feast here, 
that we would um, that you would reassure us in a way that is palpable and tangible, that you would get down into our bones the radical nature of your forgiveness and your gospel. May it be the thing that changes us. May it be the thing that transforms us. May it be the thing that drives us towards obeying you and loving you more and more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.